You're listening to the Formation Church Podcast. Formation exists to be a safe place for hurting people to find healing relationship with Jesus. For more information about the ministry of Formation in Salt Lake City, Utah, visit our website at formationslc.com. As I said, in a new teaching series uh, that I've titled Deeply Connected Community. And through this, uh, we are working toward a new season of community building here in our church. And as such, we are spending the next few weeks taking a fresh look at what it will take to build what we call formative friendships that form us in the image of Christ in this particular season of our church through, as I just mentioned, what we are going to call community groups. So these groups are intended to help us build significant relationships with other Christians that are centered on our shared experience of faith together. And I mentioned this just briefly a moment ago, but if you're not currently following along with uh, the weekly podcast that Tyler and I do where we uh, answer the question, all of the whys behind what we do as a church, this would be a really important time for you to subscribe to that podcast and listen to that because we're talking about community groups uh, exclusively for the next few weeks. And so make sure you're listening to that. If you have any questions, you can email those to info at formationslc.com, and we'll answer them on the podcast. But regardless, as a result, I've, I've been spending so much time over the last couple of months thinking about what it takes to build lasting community. So not just community that's like a blip and momentary, but what does it really take to build lasting community? And to that end, here, here's what I want us to consider together this morning. Lasting community, and when I say community, I mean that in in all of the senses in which we experience it. So that would include our friendships even outside of this room. That would include our parent-child relationships, our relationships with our siblings, our marriages, and the community that we're trying to build here in our church. Lasting community requires constant care. Lasting community requires constant care, meaning the moment that we stop tending to the community in our lives, make no mistake, it begins to slowly wither. And this got me thinking about these herb pots that Tammy and I got this summer. We've always talked about having an herb garden at home because of how much Tam cooks, and we got very, very close to actually pulling the trigger on that this summer, but instead we settled for these three big herb pots that we got from Costco. So we talked about like, man, this is going to be so great. They're probably going to do so well that we'll have to move them to like boxes. And so um, we just decided like, but let's just start. Let's just start and see how it goes with these little pots. And the short answer is it didn't go great. Um, In our defense, they started so strong. There was a couple of days there where these were like, these were the best herb pots that you've ever seen in your life. It It was like maybe the day we brought them home, but still... We were watering them. We were making sure they had all the sun they needed. We weren't cutting off so many herbs at once that it killed the plant. We were carefully tending to them, and they were doing so great. But then we went on vacation, and we couldn't tend to them the way that we had been. And as a result, our once flourishing little herb pots turned into these dry, barren desert pots within just a couple of weeks. And my point is, when we stopped tending to them, they slowly withered. And relationships are exactly the same. The moment that we stop tending to the community in our lives, it begins to slowly wither. And there may just be no aspect of community that we see that more clearly than unity. 
Now, the word unity is a complicated word in our understanding sometimes, but really, in essence, all, really, all unity really means is being on the same page. It means being on the same page. It means adhering to a shared set of values. It means working toward a shared goal. And unity is an essential Christian virtue. Psalm 133, 1 says, How good and pleasant it is when people live together in unity. Now, the inverse of that psalm is true as well. If you think about some of the most painful situations that you have found yourselves in, oftentimes it happens when there is division or conflict in a relationship that matters to you, which is why the psalmist says how good and pleasant it is when people live together in unity. In addition, unity was one of the Apostle Paul's most frequent subjects because unity is a defining mark of Christian relationship and it is essential to it. And so the question that we're going to sit with together this morning is a very simple one, and this is what it is. What does it look like? What does it look like to cultivate a united community in our church? What does it look like to cultivate a united community? And so to that end, we are going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. So if you have a Bible or an app that you like to read on, you can open up to Ephesians 4. If you don't have a Bible this morning, all the text is going to be on the screen. Uh, But we're going to be in Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6, and we're going to call this message Cultivating a United Community. Cultivating a United Community. Now, just before we jump into what is really the very middle of Paul's letter, let me just tell you a couple things about this letter to the Ephesians. First of all, it really shouldn't surprise us that as Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, that unity is one of his most frequent themes because this was a church that was ripe for division. Ephesus had an estimated population of a quarter million people, and it was the largest trading center in Western Asia, and as such, it was referred to as the mother city of Asia. It was also the home to the temple of Artemis, and the Artemis cult impacted every single part of Ephesus. And so here's why all of that is so significant. This church that Paul is writing to, that he helped start, would have been comprised largely like like two groups of people made it up. The first was Jewish people who had chosen to follow Jesus, as well as people who had left this Artemis cult to do the same. Now, the point being, they were wildly diverse. And diversity has a tendency to drive division. If you don't steward, like diversity is a good, beautiful thing. And if it's not cared for properly, it's very divisive. Just look at our country. Look at what's happening in our world. There is immense diversity, and we don't often steward it very well. And as a result, that diversity results in immense division. And so as a result, Paul spends the first three chapters of this letter really just doing one thing. He, He lifts up the good news of Jesus, and he says, this is what the good news of Jesus is. This is what the gospel is. And then the back three chapters is Paul going, and this is what that good news should do inside of us. And one of the primary things that Paul says it does is unite us together in community. And so let's jump into Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and I want you to notice that Paul starts with a very urgent invitation. He writes this, he says, therefore, meaning like as a result of everything I just said in those first three chapters, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. Now, that calling that he's referring to there, it would include everything that this group of people had received by grace through faith in Jesus. 
So all of the healing, the forgiveness, the redemption, and the promise of eternity is all bound up in what Paul refers to as their calling that they had received. And so I want you to really, really understand this because the order in this is very important. What Paul's saying is that since you have all received this gift, this calling of grace, you need to live in a way that reflects who you truly are. Paul isn't saying they need to earn their calling by proving how worthy they are. This is, again, this is such a great example of the difference between religion on the one hand and the way of Jesus on the other. He's saying, like, you've already received this, so live in a way that reflects who you truly are. And the problem that he's addressing is a common one. It's the tendency of all of us as followers of Jesus to act out of character with who we actually are in Christ. We all do that. Everybody, you probably had a moment already today, you're like, that was not very Christianly of me. Now, let's de-spiritualize this for a second. We've all done something in our lives that is out of character, right? We've probably all done that. I asked my wife, Tammy, if I could share this particular story about when she was pregnant with Ava because I'm not a complete and total idiot and I wouldn't sit here and tell a story about her without asking her permission. Uh, But I I remember watching my wife endure three pregnancies and I, I learned many things along the way. I learned that at times a woman's body is enduring so much while literally growing a human being inside of it that sometimes they understandably respond to circumstances in a way that is otherwise out of character. I gotta say, I don't think there's a sentence I've ever written that was more carefully worded than that sentence. I should run for president. That was so diplomatic, the way that I said that. So here, let me give you this example. While Tani was pregnant with Ava, she was still a manager at Crate and Barrel, and one morning, They were having this team meeting, and Tammy was responsible for presenting some idea. Neither of us can even remember what it was. What we do recall is that the whole thing was like very light-spirited and fun. It wasn't heavy. It wasn't intense. It was supposed to be like silly. And so Tammy gets done sharing her idea, and this other woman on her team is laughing, as most of the room is, and says, that's so stupid. And no sooner (laughs) had those words left this woman's mouth than my otherwise uh, kind And even shy, for the most part, wife, turned to her in front of everyone and shrieked, you're so stupid! (laughs) And I gotta tell you, that is very out of character for Tammy. But one of my proudest moments is her husband, because that's super in character for me. So I felt like it was one of the first times she really got me. So now, come come back to the spiritual realm. Because all joking aside, Paul is saying that Christians should labor to live in a way that does reflect who they are in Christ. And never one to lack clarity, Paul now goes on to provide clear instruction for what that would actually look like. Look at verse 2. So he says, Walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And I want you to understand that that last line is really what Paul's after here. He wanted them, and he wants us to cultivate virtues and to practice a way of life that keeps the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And I want you to notice again that he says, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. 
That little word keep is so important because what he's saying is, hey, hey guys, the Holy Spirit has already given you unity. He's already given that to you. He has put you on even ground. He has made you one. So make sure that you keep that gift intact. As Christians, we don't create unity. We keep it because the Holy Spirit has already created that in our midst. And it is to that end that Paul then calls them and us to cultivate three very specific virtues that help us to to protect, to keep, and to maintain the unity that the Spirit of God has already given to us. So three virtues that keep unity. Here's the first one. Number one is to cultivate humility. We're called to cultivate humility. Now, I don't think that there's many words or virtues, if you prefer that term, that I have seen more crappy teaching on inside of church and books than humility. And so I want to be as clear as I can about what humility really is. Humility does not mean being a doormat. It doesn't mean walking around like you're a worm with no value and that you're subservient to every whim of every person around you. None of that is what humility means. Humility simply means having an accurate view of yourself. That you would have an accurate view of God's view of who you are. And as a result of that, we relate with one another accordingly. And so I would argue that humility really starts by understanding that there are two seemingly contradictory realities that are entirely true of you and entirely true of me. They seem like they're contradictory, but they're both true at the same time. The first reality is you are fearfully, wonderfully, and beautifully made by God. I want you to really do your best to take a moment and receive that. Because that's not just me blowing smoke. That's Psalm 139, 14. When God looks at you, he sees beauty. When God looks at you, he feels delight. That's the first reality. The second reality is you are a hot mess all the time. And both of those things are true. Think about it. Our perceptions are always flawed. Our understanding is always limited. Our feelings and emotions are always skewed. Now, what I've noticed is that when it comes to relationship, oftentimes we relate with others with this tendency to sort of forget that latter part, that we have a tendency to be a hot mess. And humility is born when we live smack dab in the middle of those two realities. So humility then is this daily decision to live like Jesus and to choose to serve those around you rather than demanding that everyone bend to your will. And most importantly, and this is something that I think gets so missed within so much Christian teaching on humility, we have to see that the attitude of humility is cultivated through humble action. Humility is not primarily, when we look at it through a biblical lens, it is not primarily a feeling. It is an action, which is why we're told to humble ourselves over and over and over in Scripture. It isn't something that we just sit around and hope to feel. It's an action that we take that cultivates an attitude inside of our hearts. And so we're called to humble ourselves. And I would argue there's no experience in life more perfectly designed to cultivate humility than relationship. It's just like God's like, 
I want you to be humble. Here's some people for you to spend some time around. It's just perfectly designed for that. And I, I would argue that these community groups that we're working toward are going to be an amazing venue to cultivate humility because I guarantee you there's going to be at least one person in your group that just annoys the bejesus out of you. <laughs> and we can laugh about that, but the reality is there is a beautiful formational opportunity in that little irritation. Some of you are like, I don't like that they talk. That kind of thing, every time you think that, don't laugh like, oh, I don't ever think that. Yes, you do. Every time we feel something like that, we have an opportunity to humble ourselves in relationship. Humility demands the decision to love that person anyways, to engage with them anyways, to pray for them and to care for them anyways. If we're going to build a united community, we have to cultivate humility. Now, the second virtue that Paul hits on is gentleness, that we would cultivate gentleness. Now, I, I know that this is just a little awkward, but I, I really want you to do me a favor. We'll have a shared awkward experience, okay? You don't have to say anything or go anywhere. I just want you to, to just look around the room at the faces in this room for just one second, okay? Just look around, all these different people. Everybody feel like death right now? <laughs> Great. Now, here's what I want you to understand. The people sitting on either side of you, the people who might be sitting behind you, the people sitting in front of you, all these people that are sitting across the room from you, listen to this. Every single one of them is experiencing so much more than you understand. Every single one. They have wounds of which you are unaware. They have struggles that you cannot see. And just because people appear okay, and just because we are admittedly very resilient as human beings, does not mean that we are not also extremely fragile. And as Christians... We have to treat one another as such. Now, that doesn't mean that we like walk around on eggshells all of the time. It just simply means that we treat one another with care. Because far too often we speak and we behave in a way that says that our speech and our actions are of no consequence to the people around us. And the truth is, our words and our actions are of the gravest consequence to the people around us. And as a result, we treat one another with great care. I would, I would venture a guess that ev virtually every one of us in this room, at some point, a sentence has been spoken to you that you just can't get out of your soul. Just a sentence. And it just like gutted you. That's all it takes. One sentence. And so instead, Paul calls us to be gentle with one another. Now, furthermore, being gentle also means more than just not being harsh. For instance, one of the issues in my own speech that my loving wife has been trying for 20 years to help me see is that I have a tendency to communicate in a way that can be, let's just call it, unnecessarily intense. Um, now, my intensity has many strengths, uh, thank God, because I have tried and can't get rid of it. But in interpersonal communication, uh, it's more often than not highly unhelpful. 
So being gentle, in all seriousness, for me, means really working hard to ratchet down intensity when I'm, like, even if I'm just trying to understand, I, it has a way sometimes to make people feel like, I, I need to be nowhere near you right now. And so I got to work really, really hard to ratchet that intensity down. And for all of us, gentle means, gentleness means living in a mild and even-tempered manner rather than being harsh rather than being erratic in the way that we respond, rather than being volatile and being unpredictable. If we're going to build a united community, we have to cultivate gentleness. And then finally, Paul invites us to cultivate patience. Patience. Now, I love this one because Paul actually describes this patience in our text. Listen again. He describes patience as bearing with one another in love. Now, let's be super clear. Patience does not mean enduring patterns of abuse in a relationship. Patience doesn't mean putting yourself in an unhealthy relationship and staying stuck there. Patience just simply means bearing with one another even when it's a little uncomfortable and probably pretty inconvenient. And the problem is we are an increasingly impatient people. I'll give you an example of how impatient we've become. I want you to think about the last time that a website took more than one second to load on your phone or your computer. Just one second, like, if it didn't happen like that, you, you would think that the most incredulous demand had been made of our lives. Like, some of, I'm old enough to remember, do you remember dial-up? Like, forget seconds, you're talking like minutes to get a page to load. And I remember pre-internet, you had to go to the library to learn anything. So maybe the 13 seconds it takes for the page to load is okay. We, we have just, we were, there was a time where like even with dial-up, we were like, I don't care how long it takes. This is amazing because we were mystified by the technology. But now we've just become increasingly privileged due to how quickly our technology works for us. And as a result, we're just appalled when it doesn't operate according to our preferred timetable. And that is the definition of impatience. And we bring that same attitude to our relationships with one another. So when people don't do what we want them to do, the way we want them to do it, and most importantly, when we want them to do it, we get irritable and agitated. And irritability and agitation just destroy unity. And so Paul calls us to cultivate patience by simply bearing with one another in sacrificial love for one another. So if we're going to build a united community, we have to cultivate humility, gentleness, and patience. Now I want you to notice how Paul finishes with a very weighty motivation for all of this. Look at verse 4. He says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. So Paul's motive for the preservation of unity is what one scholar refers to as the fundamental unities on which the Christian faith and life are based, meaning that the members of a local church are meant to be an expression that make up one body. We are protected and preserved by one spirit. We have one Savior and Lord in Jesus. We have one faith. We're all baptized in one grace. We serve one God and Father. And this is the reason that Paul says it matters so much 
that we make every effort to preserve unity through humility, gentleness, and patience. And so to summarize this, here's, here's how I would state it. This is our big idea. Disunity disassembles what the Spirit has built. Think about how much that matters. Disunity disassembles what the Spirit has built, meaning when we are divided, when we don't work through conflict in a healthy way, when we don't speak up when our feelings have been hurt, when we don't give people the the opportunity to be able to work through things, when we don't do these things, we are destroying the work of God. Feel the weight of that. It isn't about just making our lives more comfortable and to feel better so that we don't have to have like awkward interactions. When we are divided, we are destroying the very work of God that Jesus shed his blood for. So it matters. And as we get ready to close, I just want to put this reminder back in your mind that unity is what we have already received. Unity is one of the many gifts that we are given in Christ. And so the question is always, am I protecting it? In the way that I interact with this person, in the way that I speak to this person, in the way that I respond to this person, am I protecting the unity that the Spirit of God has given to us? So Paul starts this letter in chapter 1 saying that actually all of human history is moving toward God's plan to bring everything together in Christ. Unity is the mission of God in this world. A day will come when he will unite all things in Christ. And when we choose behavior that divides us, we are disassembling what the Spirit has and is building. And so I want to I close with an image of this that I want you to leave with. When you walked in, you were either handed or sitting on your chair was, uh, was one of these blocks. So I just pick that up for a second and, and hold that. And at, at one time or another, we've probably all played or we've all seen uh, or at least understand the game Jenga, from which these blogs is a maddening game. It's just filled with stress. That's not my favorite kind of game. I have enough of that in my regular life. I don't need it in my fun life, too. So we've all, we've all played Jenga or seen it. You know the premise. You start with this perfect structure that is comprised of 54 bricks like this. And then players each take a turn pulling out a block and then placing it on top. Now the problem is, every single time a block gets pulled, it makes the stack increasingly unstable until it finally crumbles. So it starts with this perfectly formed and relatively stable structure. But by the end, it's just this pile on the floor. And so here's what we have to see. Divisive attitudes and behaviors do that exact same thing to our relationships and do that exact same thing to our church. So humility, Paul says, preserves unity. But pride just pulls a block. And in the same way, gentleness preserves unity. But when we are harsh, when our intensity is uncontrolled, When we are insensitive, we pull a block. Patience with one another. 
preserves and it protects our unity. But impatience pulls a block. And what we have to see is, if we keep pulling blocks, the relationship will eventually fall. And many of us in this room have experience with that very reality. Where we have a relationship that has fallen apart and maybe not even any longer a part of our life. And ultimately it happens because we don't preserve the unity that the Spirit of God has entrusted to us to care for. And so I just want to simply invite you, I know it might feel a little cheesy, but I want to invite you to take that block home. And I want to invite you to just find a Sharpie at some point and and write those three virtues. Just write humble, gentle, patient. And put that somewhere that you're going to see it often. And every time you look at it, I want you to remember this. Disunity disassembles what the Spirit has built. And so the question for us is, will we cultivate a united community or will we just continue to pull blocks until it finally falls? Let's pray. Father, I just I feel compelled to start with a confession on our behalf. And that confession is that, that none of us does a perfect job of protecting the unity and the relationships in our lives. I mean, the very reason that, that Paul has to speak to any of these issues is that oftentimes we are not humble. Oftentimes we are not gentle. Oftentimes we are not patient. We're all guilty of that. And for that, Lord, I just want to acknowledge it and say that we are sorry that we don't protect, that we don't care for, that we don't labor to preserve what you have so graciously given to us. You have entrusted us the fragility of one another's hearts and minds and bodies and souls. And oftentimes we just play very fast and loose with that. And we hurt one another. And we are resentful when we have been hurt. And and all of that destroys what you have given to us. And so we are in desperate need of your help. We are in desperate need of your grace. So Lord, we ask that you would help us to be people who choose humility and gentleness and patience with one another. Help us to be good stewards of the unity that you have given us. Help us to care for and tend to our relationships. Lord, that is so much more important than so many of the other things that we invest so much time in. And so I pray that you would help us. And Lord, we pray that where there has been even devastating damage done in relationship, that you would bring healing. Lord, you you know firsthand how complicated relationship is. And so we just ask that you would give us wisdom and strength do it well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
All right, let's hit some Q&A. First up, longing for God and for human relationships is an experience that will never disappear. How do we carry this heavy burden when a person lacks tactical social skills? That's a fabulous way to describe a socially inept human being. So when a person lacks tactical social skills, yeah, a couple of different things. I would say one is, um, at some point, I, I want to do a series on this because I really, really think that it is an under-taught-on subject. I think that one of the most important skills for a human being to learn if they're go- going to walk honestly with Jesus is you have to learn how to grieve because we live in a fallen, imperfect world, which means that our lives are just filled with loss, big losses and small losses, we lose relationships, and so when that happens, anytime we experience a loss, again, regardless of big or small, regardless of what kind it is, um, we have to learn to grieve that loss. You lose a pet, you have to grieve. You lose a parent, you have to grieve. You lose a job, you have to grieve. I mean, I'd go so far as to say, like, when you lose a show, like, when they, when they can't, like, <laughs> I'm, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Like, any, all, all loss needs to be grieved, or... It's like, like, you know, bees just like carry pollen. I don't know anything about bees. I think that's what happens, right? They just carry pollen on themselves and then they take it from place to place. We're just carrying, our souls are just carrying loss. And grief is how we learn to offload that into the lap of God. I hope that that mm, was like, that was insightful and not something else. <laughs> um, because I really do believe that's what happens. So we have, I would say first and foremost is, We all have this longing for God, and we have a longing for human relationship, and I think if we are honest, more and more of us are looking at our relationships and our community in life, and we're going like, this is not all that I want it to be. When I think about my familial relationships, these are not all I want them to be. When we look at our marriages, we think, this is not all I want it to be. That that is a reality that needs to be grieved. So that's, that's first and foremost. And then secondly, what I would say is, as far as carrying that heavy burden, really learning the practice of lament, talking to God about the grief that you feel, talking to God about disappointment and anger and all that stuff, learning to really process that emotionally. And then the last thing I'd say is that we choose these three behaviors, that regardless of whether or not this person has all of the, quote, tactical social skills I wish that they had, I'm going to be humble I'm going to be gentle with this person, and I'm going to be patient. That is the definition of having to bear with one another in love. If it was easy, you wouldn't have to bear with them. The very reason that Paul says that is because people are a freaking pain, and he knows, hey, if if we're going to do this well, we're going to have to learn to bear with one another when we're irritating, when we're hurtful, when we're all of those things. And so I would say learn to grieve, learn to lament, and then put those three practices into behavior in all of our relationships. Great question. Next, how can we discern the need to protect unity, which might require distancing and disconnecting from some people? Well, the scriptures give us some clarity. You know, in Titus, uh, I think Titus chapter 1 or Titus chapter 2, Paul is writing to a young pastor, and he gives instruction on divisive behavior. So I don't know if you know this, but sometimes in churches, people get divisive. Um, I know, you've probably never heard of that before. I have. Um, Sometimes all of us do stuff that's divisive. The truth is, like I just said this, but when we're not 
humble, when we're not patient, when we're not gentle, we are being divisive. And so some people live in a way that is very divisive. Gossip and backbiting and slander, these types of things destroy churches. They've taken a huge chunk out of our own church. And so Titus is told by Paul to warn a divisive person once, twice, and then have nothing to do with them. Think about that. Like, that doesn't rest very well on our very, like, comfortable palates, but that's what Paul says. If, if a person in the church has a pattern of division, it is so destructive and so dangerous that if a person has been, again, patiently, lovingly, gently confronted, hey, you cannot behave like this here. It destroys what God has built. And they do it again. And you warn them again. And then on the third time, Paul's like, that's it. There are very few things that are not safe within the local church but that type of chosen behavior, I'm going to be divisive and I'm going to destroy the very work of God in this place, that, that's a deal breaker. And so I would say that that's one place in the context of the church. I would say when it comes to just our interpersonal relationships, what we have to pay attention to is a pattern of behavior. So we're all going to do things, again, that are out of character. We're all going to make mistakes. We're going to hurt one another. So we have to learn to apologize, we have to learn to forgive, we have to learn to make amends, and some people have a pattern of behavior that is either abusive or so ongoingly destructive that a boundary has to be set and a person has to make the decision, I can no longer be in this relationship. I will tell you, I've had to do that two times in my whole life, and one was with my biological father. So it's a huge, heartbreaking decision to make. I would argue it should not be treated lightly. You should seek an immense amount of counsel before with a therapist, with a counselor, with a pastor, with a trusted, mature friend. But there are times when we have to make those decisions for our own health, and it is very, very painful. And if I can be of assistance to you in that, then I would be happy to. Great question. Last one. Does God talk to men and women the same? Does the Bible offer a framework for how men should talk to women and vice versa? Um, I, don't, I, I don't think that I could say the Bible offers a framework for how men should talk to women and vice versa. Um, there are, like, I, my Christians believe differently about gender, and I would say my position is that men and women are 100% equal as image bearers of God. And we have a tendency to complement one another in relationship. And so I don't believe that men and women are exactly the same in, the way, in, in all ways, but I also don't believe that every two men are the same or that every two women are the same. Like I got to a point where I had to stop reading marriage books because I was just so tired of like two people writing a marriage book that had figured out three things that worked for them but didn't work for me and Tam at all and just left me feeling guilty and bad. And so I just did away with that because like what we really, like I would like there's some instruction where Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, Paul says to husbands, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding manner. And I think that's probably the most important piece of, of marriage advice that exists in the whole Bible for husbands. You are to be a student of this woman. And I'm not joking. You have tension in your marriage, guys. Oftentimes it's because you're a crap student at understanding your wife. And I know that because they talk to me about it. And so that is a very direct thing. That P Are we okay? Like, uh... <laughs> so 
But what I would say is regardless of what, what I would say, like my, I, I think that like we're going to have a men's night in December. I would say the tone, and I'm going to do a little bit of teaching in that one. I would say the tone of that one might feel a little bit differently than a mixed setting like this because um, <laughs> I don't know. I guess, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to not sound like a complete jerk. Um, and I, I really, it, here's what I would say. It really matters to me that we not that we not insert things into scripture that are not there. So I have to look at this question and go, uh, does God talk to men and women the same? I, I, don't, I don't know that God talks to, to two people the same, much less just men and women. There are definitely times when like, like if you think about the, the end of Job, when Job's been just like sort of lamenting through this whole book, that God's response to him is essentially like, I think he says, gird up your loins because it's about to come. I'm coming hard and heavy on this one. And, and God just sets Job straight because that's what Job needed. I would still read that and say, like, I, God's not being harsh. God's not being mean, but he is being direct. And so what I would say more than it being a male or a female thing is that we have to really know one another. Some, some people, like Tyler and I have always used this phrase, like, some people don't hear the feedback in the conversation. I would argue most people don't. You got to just look at it and be like, look. I'm, I'm talking about you. I'm talking to you. I'm talking about you. This whole thing's about you. You have to be very, very direct about that. Now, I, I have noticed in our, in our culture, people have really lost their taste for direct communication. If someone speaks directly to us, we tend to interpret it as this person is being mean or harsh, when the truth is maybe they're just being very direct with you. And I don't think that we do one another very many favors by being so vague and all over the place that someone walks away going, I have no idea what that was about. Like, I would hope that you walk away from a conversation with me knowing exactly what it was about. And I want to walk away from a conversation with you knowing exactly what it was about. And so I would say that some people's tolerance for that sort of, like, Tyler and I can sit and have, like, it would scare many of you out of the room to sit and listen to many of the conversations that we have. Our tolerance for direct communication with one another is extremely high. We've been friends for 27 years. In our 20s, we had multiple screaming blowouts in our tiny little apartment. So we're just like comfortable. We don't do that anymore. But it's just very, very direct. Oh, I disagree. I think that's a dumb idea. I like, there's just no, no needing to, to soften any of it. But I would not speak like that with someone that I don't know. Someone there's not years of relationship. I don't speak to my wife like that because my relationship with her is different. She's a different person. And so I think that we would do ourselves a lot more benefit by making it less about like, well, this is how you talk to a woman and this is how you talk to a man and just really understand one another. What is fruitful? What is beneficial? What is good in every conversation we have? And that's going to differ from person to person. Sit down, son. I'm just kidding. Go ahead. (laughs) As soon as I handed out those blocks this morning, I'm like, this, this is going to be an issue. My boys are going to throw these everywhere. It's going to be a thing. All right. That's my answer to that. I hope that's helpful. I feel like that one was a little bit more confusing. Um, my short answer is I don't believe the Bible gives a clear framework. I think we see examples in Scripture of God talking to not just men and women differently, but people differently based on who they are, where they are, and their own understanding of him, and we should do the same.